Good evening, everyone. Broadcasting live, August 29th, 2015. Today is the Uposata, the full moon. At least that's what my Thai calendar tells me. I don't, uh, I haven't checked when exactly the full moon is, but it's got to be around this time. So it's also traditionally the time when we shave our heads, which I've done. So you may notice that I look different. And today we have a quote from the Diga Nikaya. Robin, would you do us the honor of reading it? Sure. The Lord said to Lo, Lohicha, it is true that you think like this. If a monk or Brahmin discovers some important truth, he should not teach it to others. For what can one person do for another? It is just as if, having cut through an old bond, one were to make a new bond. Such a thing is an evil action rooted in attachment. For what can one person do for another? Yes, good Godama, that is my thinking. What do you think about this, Lohicha? You reside here in Salawatika. If someone were to say the Brahmin Lohicha should enjoy all the revenue and produce of Salawatika, allowing nothing to anyone else, would one who speaks like this be a danger to your tenants? He would, good Gotama. And as such, would he be considering their welfare or not? He would not. And not considering their welfare, would he have a heart full of love for them? or one full of ill will, full of ill will, good Gotama. And in a heart full of ill will, is there wrong view or perfect view? Wrong view. Now, if one holds wrong views, I say one of two destinies results, rebirth in purgatory or as an animal. So this addresses the interesting question of whether one who's enlightened should teach. And we have this tradition that says that the Buddha himself was disinclined to teach when he became enlightened. So it's an interesting debate to, 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 to understand exactly where the truth lies or, or what's proper. You know, what should we be emulating? Should we emulate the Buddha who taught for 45 years or should we emulate the Buddha who decided not to teach? As I understand it, it's the difference between um, having someone to teach and going out of one's way to teach. So without an invitation, the Buddha was disinclined to teach. Once he had the invitation, he undertook to teach uh, as appropriate. So he, he decided to teach for those people who could easily understand. He realized he inclined his mind and, and saw that there were people who could easily understand his teachings. And so he uh, acquiesced to the, to the request for that reason. But what, this, what the difference here is, I think, is what's being said is uh, one should, should refuse to teach. If one has learned the truth, one should have hold the view 
better not to teach. You should hold the view. Uh, someone asked me about this, I'm not going to teach them. And the Buddha never had such an idea. But he was living in the forest when he first became enlightened, and it seems that he was disinclined to go out of his way to find people who would understand his teaching. And the commentary, I think, also says that he just wanted to give Brahma a chance to invite him, because with Brahma's invitation, it would mean more, more people would immediately take him seriously. Which makes sense. I mean, if, if you believe in things like Brahma and so on, makes sense. It makes sense to wait and to let it happen the right way, you see. And just because because the Buddha didn't go out of his way to decide to teach doesn't mean that other people shouldn't invite him to teach. It doesn't mean that Brahma did something wrong because he went against, he argued with the Buddha. But the Buddha, if the Buddha were to go out of his way to teach without an invitation, it would appear to be pushing the teaching on others. Today I went all the way to Newmarket, which from here is almost two hours for lunch. Yeah, yesterday I got in a bit of an argument, not an argument, I was just being kind of like a brat to the head monk. He said, uh, he said, and he called me in the afternoon and he said, I want you to go to Newmarket. I said, oh, no, no, I don't want to go to Newmarket. It's almost two hours away. And he said, no, you have to go. They need you. So they don't need me. I know what this is. It's a funeral he wants me to go to. And there happens to be, they have Cambodian children who have married Western men who they want, they think somehow these Western men want to learn the Dhamma, which of course they don't. Um, and in fact, none of them are really Buddhist in, in any, I'm mean, sorry, I shouldn't be saying this, but none of them are really practicing you know, Buddhist Buddhism. So I went, uh, so I so I declined, and he kept pushing me and pushing me, and he said, finally, you know, we argued and joked about it, and I, I just refused to, I said, no, I'm sorry. I said, I'll wait for you. You, you come, I'll, I'll wait for you. I said, well, you'll be waiting a long time. <laughs> and then finally he said, okay, fine, but tomorrow you have to go. So what could I do today? Today I had to go. But I went because of him. I went out of respect for him rather than, I bring this up because it's an interesting, it's it's related in a sense, as an example, I would say of, you, you shouldn't, it doesn't mean you should just teach people because, you know, they don't know it, right? People don't know the teaching, so you should go and teach them, or, oh, they've married Buddhists, or, or that kind of thing, or they call themselves Buddhists, or so on, so you should, I mean, absolutely, if they came to the monastery, I'd be fine to teach them, but for me to travel two hours almost two hours there, and then two hours, almost two hours back. Of course, they did feed us lunch, but, you know, that was part of it as well. You know, if people are willing to feed you, then you shouldn't make it hard for them to do that. People wish to support you. you know, I mean, I require that, and they're kind enough to do it, so that's part of why I went. Yesterday was just going to be me going to teach in the afternoon, and you know, if if these if it was a meditation course they were running or that kind of thing, I went all the way to Vancouver. There's no problem. I'd go all around the world to do that. But to speak at a funeral, and then when I got there, the funny thing was I got there, and the daughter of the deceased 
said, uh, okay, so I want you to explain to us um, what's going on when you do the ritual. <laughs> I'm like, okay. What I said to her is, I said, okay, listen, we're monks, we're not priests. So whatever ritual is going on, uh, I, I, I'll have no idea, I'll have as much of an idea about it as you do. I mean, I could, I could explain to you my thoughts on it, but it would be as an outsider. And I said, you know, I can, I can talk on death if you like, and I can explain the Buddhist philosophy on death. So I did that, and uh, you kind of know you, you had an impact when people come up to you afterwards and talk to you, or, or, you know, tell you that they thought that was interesting or so on. And no one did. There was really very little interest in what I'd said. I had them close their eyes and look at the world from the point of view experience of experience to try and help them to see, to, to put death in the right context. That in the context of experience, death is, is just a concept. The experience doesn't cease. Experience is the base. And, for, and, and why would we think that that should cease at death? And then I talked about the things you should do in regards to when a person dies. And, and so on. Ten minutes. I got less than ten minutes to talk. Well, this is much more beneficial here, I think. But, you know, not that I have a problem with outreach. It's just the point of this, in regards to this quote, is, you know, you have to, you have to be real, realistic. You shouldn't, you know, we don't live to teach others. But you should teach if they ask you to teach. If it's reasonable, if the court request is reasonable. I don't think driving two hours to give a 10-minute talk to people who don't really aren't really all that interested in what you're saying I don't consider that to be very reasonable but maybe that's just me I also um, probably he's watching now but the guy who commented about the um, the, the depression medication responded after last night's diatribe a rant um, and he apologized and, and but but still says that I'm I have a hole in my karuna those are his words so I'm not laughing at him I just it's well said it's a very clever turn of the phrase we should get him on here really if he'd be willing to come on we could talk but that's fine um, and I, I just want to argue that I don't think the the problem that I would have is lack of karuna in this instance. It would be a misunderstanding. If I'm wrong, then it's not being cruel, it's being mistaken. Because my belief or my view, based on what I've seen, and it may be wrong, is that it is un unbeneficial for a person on antidepressants or anti-anxiety or any psychoactive drugs to in, to undergo an intensive meditation course. Now in my defense, um, as a defense I would propose the, that um, the person I'm arguing with doesn't have an idea of how intensive a meditation course really is and I do. Um, and anyone who's been through it can tell you it's arduous. It it's the very purpose of it is to come to terms with 
everything, to be able to deal with anything. Now the problem with a person who has severe depression, and it sounds like hallucinations, potential schizophrenia, I don't know, is that they're not able to deal with reality and they need drugs in order to deal with reality. Now that's fine, you know, I, I'm not criticizing that. I'm not saying, no, you don't need drugs. I'm just saying that means the situation is so dire. I mean, it's not a lost cause, but it's, it's you're so, you know, when we're, when we're talking about being able to deal with everything, um, the person on the medication, the medication isn't going to help you deal with things. You, do you need it? Well, sure, maybe you need it. I mean, certainly some people would have a very hard time going off of it. But it's still that you still a need. It's still an inability to deal with you know, the things that you have to deal with, which most of us don't have to deal with. So you would come and do a meditation course here, and you just wouldn't be able to last. You wouldn't be able to go through. You might... You know, I'd, I'd ask you questions and you wouldn't have the answers because your mind is, isn't is experiencing things uh, in a natural way. Your, your mind is being, it's like floating above them because of the medication. I mean, that's my view. It's not that I, you're not welcome here. You're certainly welcome. And as I think I said, anyone on any medication is, well, see, but here's the problem, is in the West, we have a bit of a problem because we can't really do much for such a person. I can't tell you to go off the medication. It sounds like for many people they don't want to go off the medication. But if you if you were to somehow agree that such a person couldn't do a intensive meditation course, which maybe you don't agree, but if we take that argument as sound, then um, you know what is the point to come here at all? if not to somehow get to eventually get to the point where you can take the course, which would mean, according to my argument, getting off the medication. Now, I would still argue against the, fa against the idea, the belief, that a person, even a schizophrenic, needs medication. I don't think intrinsically that they do. Now, I may be wrong. Yeah, I'm, not, I'm not a schizophrenic. I don't have um, experience. I have experience with people. I was a monk once. I was with a monk once who believed there was a microchip in his head, and he knew it was ridiculous, but he still believed it. And I would consider him to be a schizophrenic, because he actually, you know, he was... But he was interesting. We talked about medita meditation. I don't think he was on any medication, but as a monk, you know, he could have sort of live a free life and not have to deal with society. Um, but a really interesting guy, really into meditation. Um... But, yeah, maybe, I mean, I just mean to say I, I've seen, I understand a little bit about what it's like, uh, uh, you know, from an outsider's point of view, perspective. Um, but the point is that even hallucinations are just hallucinations. They're just sounds and sights and smells. You know, it's it's our reactions to them that we have to change. And these are habitual, and these are things you can fix. This is the part of the mind that we can change. We can't stop ourselves from thinking certain things, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling certain things. But we can change our reactions. We can decide in a moment not to react to something, and that creates, that adds to the habit of not reacting, of objectivity. So this is what our meditation practice is all about. 
And so certainly I, I encourage, I would love to encourage such people to come, but as I said, legality is a bit of an issue. So it's something we'd have to talk about on a, on a case-by-case basis, but I have, you know, it's not that I don't want to help, it's that I think legally I have difficulty helping, you know, because my point of view is that you should go off the medication. So I think what's something that could happen is... Uh, such an individual could talk with their doctor and maybe the three of us could talk. So they're talking to a real real doctor and maybe with me there or somehow involved, me or, or whatever, some meditation teacher, hypothetically. And the three work together, you know. And as the doctor starts to see that the meditation is making the medication less necessary, then they would prescribe less medication. I'd, I'd be happy to do so. I'd love to do such a thing because it would prove that medica- meditation works. I mean, I, my hands are tied. I tried this with someone. I told him to take, he came to do a meditation course. And I told. I said, well, we'll do it. You know, we'll, we'll try it, but we're going to do it. Um, I don't think we can do the whole course, but we'll do what we can. We'll do it at your speed. But I want you to try to take, a, to, to reduce the medication. So I would say, no, no, now take half a pill less, now take half a pill less. But then I had doctors, I was talking about this on the internet, and then I had doctors come up to me and the Sri Lanka, a couple of Sri Lankan doctors come up to me and tell me, you can't do that. You'll get in big trouble. It's, it's, you can be in trouble with the law if, you, if they ever have problems. This is not something you should do. And I think they, were, they also immediately suggested that I shouldn't take people who, have, uh, who are taking such medication or something like that. We talked and talked about it. And they gave me lots of information about SSRIs or whatever they're called. Something, something, serotonin, something, reuptake inhibitors. Anyway, so thought I would address that. I don't read all my comments, so don't leave me comments because I'm not going to read them. But somehow I managed to catch both of these comments, which happily, because it's nice. Anyway, do we have questions? Is this all from today? Oi, okay. Robin, we got questions. I don't hear you. Oh, I apologize. I, my neighbors were using some power tools, so I'm trying to block that out. When I sit down and meditate, I notice they that they are that there are sparkles of light moving all around me. Any explanation of this phenomena? You mean like real sparkles of light or you see sparkles of light? Um, it can happen through meditation that you see lights and colors and pictures, usually with your eyes closed. But if you're seeing them with your eyes open, my guess is it's probably more physical. Meditation might do, it, it can affect your body. Um, and sometimes you do see spots before your eyes, but I would suggest it's, I, mean, I don't know. Explanation. We don't really try to explain things, not in the sense that I think you're looking for. We, When you see something, it's seeing. I can explain it. That is an experience of seeing. When you wonder about it, that's an experience of wondering. When you think, hey, I'll ask the monk that, that's an intention. That's how we explain things in Buddhism. We're not really interested in where those lights come from. It's really inconsequential. But, you know, I have I could speculate with you if you like.
I read a book about enlightenment. They say that nirvana is a state of mind where you draw any in, inconscious sleep state of mind into the conscious state of mind. So is nirvana just like a dream? That doesn't sound like nirvana at all. Inconscious sleep state of mind into the conscious state of mind. It's clever anyway, but no, that's not what it's like at all. Nirvana is freedom from suffering. That's about all you should know about it. It's not important to know much more because it's the end, it's the goal. What you should ask yourself is whether the path is helpful for you, whether you're benefiting from meditating. If you're benefiting, then keep going. Forget about the goal. If you're benefiting, then, then that should be the impetus to practice more and harder and more intensively because it's awesome to meditate. just wanted to bring something up. I don't know if anyone's seen this, but look what I got sent today. Maybe I'll start doing book reviews. And I'm not, I haven't read this yet, so I'm not uh, promoting it, but that's interesting. Because uh, struggling with lifelong disordered eating and adolescent addiction, Chris Cole had his first psychotic episode at the age of 18, suddenly believing he was the second coming of Christ. Well, I believed I was Christ around that age. No, not exactly. He lost his identity and tried to perform miracles. Whoa. I was arrested one, and I was given a detention once for going out on a window ledge in a Jesus costume. It was Halloween, so there's that. But this seems neat. He eventually surrendered to his humanity and learned to embrace reality. I get all these uh, people. I'm on a list in California. We were on the Prison Dharma Network list, and for some reason they put our email, put my email, on the internet, which is the hugest no-no there is. And since that day, you know, since that time, it's no longer, I hope it's no longer on their website, but since that time I've gotten spam of every sort imaginable. Most of it's kind of neat spam, actually. And a lot of it's like, hey, we've got this book. Would you like a copy? <laughs> okay, send it here. This one sounded interesting. Has anyone read this book? The Body of Chris. I don't think it's a very famous book, but the New York Times best-selling author says good things about it. Hmm. Yeah, it'd be neat. It's a memoir of obsession, addiction, and madness. And so it's the the idea is that eventually he he surrendered to his humanity. wonder how he's doing it, probably with medication. I mean, most of the people do it with medication. Which I'm not, not anti-medication per se. I just, it's not the solution, and it's got to go if you're going to become enlightened. I, mean, I think, I suppose technically it doesn't have to go, because technically it's still physical. But it's... The, the the reason behind taking it, it's like alcohol is physical, right? So why is it against the precepts? Because the question is, why are you taking the alcohol? Any, any purpose you could possibly have for taking alcohol or drugs is unwholesome. You know, except in the case where you take alcohol as medicine. But alcohol is not a medicine. It's just that some medicine is in alcohol, right?
So there's that. Back a long time ago when they had all that kind of snake oil medicine, that was all alcohol. Mm -hmm. It really was. Thailand, in Thailand, people. they have this yatat, which is really good medicine for your stomach, but it's alcohol-based as well. Is it wrong to have many teachers or should we look for one? Also, should one have an in-person teacher rather than an online teacher? Hmm. In-person teacher is better, for sure. Um, having one teacher is, I would, one tradition is better. Many teachers is okay. If you if you have many teachers consecutively, that's conceivably okay. But having many teachers concurrently, that's a problem. Because there's, you know, every teacher has their own ideas and a lot of it's conflicting. So, yeah, pick one tradition at a time. Switching teachers is cool. I mean, they do it a lot more in Sri Lanka than Thailand. In Thailand, there's a lot more um, clique, cliqueishness. But in Sri Lanka, they, they do move around and you, you know, you're free to go with this teacher or that teacher, which is pretty cool. But I would still suggest not more than one teacher at once. And having a teacher in person is a lot better because they can talk to you and they can address your concern. It's just, there's a better feeling to it. You know, even video, I mean, video is coming close now. I've done meditation courses over the internet with Skype with people. But it's um, it takes a dedicated individual. If someone's dedicated enough, you can do it over the internet. But you know, if you're with someone, it's a psychological benefit of being in the same room with them and talk to them and so on. Why do med meditation practitioners get harassed in society? I find it difficult to meditate because people see me as crazy or lazy. Any help? Yeah, become a monk. I don't know. Or meditate on the harassment. The Buddha said you can't control other people, what they're going to say. People are not going to say the right thing at the right time just because you want them to. When you realize that, you just have, see it as an experience. doesn't mean you have to listen to them or follow their lead. Can you give me insight about thought manifestation? It seems that every thought I have is manifesting in my reality and is getting quicker with time. I mean, you think something and then it becomes physical. Hmm. Suppose that could happen. It's not that common. I don't know. Again, it's one of these things that's interesting but not really consequential. It's something that you should notice by saying knowing, knowing. Can crystals help in the practice of meditation? Not our meditation, no. 
What are the causal and astral plane? I have no idea. Is it possible for properly done meditation to lead to lucid dreaming or a better sense of self-realization? The latter more than the former, but it's not about self-realization. It's about realization, period. Truth realization, you could say. For yourself, if you want to put it that way. You know, it's not not relying on someone else's knowledge so it's in that sense it's self-realization but we prefer probably to say realization or truth realization because self-realization is the danger of potentially leading one to think that there's a self Mind naturally goes into reflection about what's going on in the body and mind off the cushion. Hmm. Is it leading to right direction? No. I mean, it's not something to to be judgmental about, but it's not something to encourage. You know, meditation, yes, can help you solve your problems in life, so there's that, but that's a... It's considered a byproduct, jnana, you could call it. It's one of the ten upakilesa. It actually disturbs your practice. When you start solving worldly problems, um, it takes away from your meditation practice. So, no, it's not the right path. It's, it's a limited positive byproduct. That's useful for when you're living in the world. That's something you should acknowledge, thinking, thinking, and so on but then try to come back. Are any meditation subjects both samatha and vipassana? Yes, but no object is both. Or, yeah, no object is both. So the difference between a subject that you're calling it and an object, the word I'm using, there are two different categories. By subject, you mean a topic topic and subject, right? But by object, it means something real, something that is experienced. Or, no, not even, not necessarily. It's Object means the real thing that, that is being focused upon. So we could say breath meditation is both samatha and vipassana. But if you focus on the breath, that's samatha. If you focus on the um, body as it's affected by the breath, that's vipassana. The difference is the object. Samatha meditation takes the concept of in and out, which is just conceptual. You're thinking about this, now now it's going in, now it's going out. That's not the actual experience. Or you can take the experience here or the experience at the stomach, and that's real, and so that's vipassana. Now, can you, if you, if the question was, can you be practicing both samatha and vipassana together? Then yes, the answer is still potentially yes in a different way, but not in the way as um, it's understood through the commentaries. The practice that we do, for example, could be called both samatha and vipassana. Why? Because it's it's samatha because your mind does become tranquilized over time through the practice, but. Vipassana, because the goal is not that tranquility, the goal is insight. 
So the meaning of samatha meditation is meditation whose ultimate goal is tranquility. The meaning of vipassana meditation is meditation whose ultimate goal is insight. And so the, in, in the traditional sense, the, in the commentaries, samatha is considered to be inferior. It's, a, it's, it's defined as that meditation which merely leads to, to, to worldly tranquility. And there's a lot of that. You know, the Buddha even said metta meditation, for example. If you practice it and don't end up practicing vipassana, it'll lead to the Brahma realms. There's a lot like that. So it's limited. Uh, vipassana is not limited. It leads all the way to, to Nibbana. Even though it may lead to tranquility, that's not the point. It's a meditation that leads to Nibbana. But they're just words. And you can, depending on how you define them, you can find different answers to that question. Okay, this person, Texas Toril, I think you have to read my booklet on how to meditate before you ask any more questions. Because everything we do here should be based, any meditation we do here should be based on that booklet. I mean, I'm not going to control how you do it, but asking questions, it's clear that you... Uh, you have you 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 haven't perhaps, or you're not focused on the booklet. So take this booklet as my Bible. I don't want to say it like that. No, that's not that's not fair to say. But take it as a guide for the way that we approach Buddhism, and go from there. I have a problem with anxiety and fear. I know it's all in my head, and the chance of the things I think of happening is minute, but I can't help worrying about them. Any advice you can give that will help? You can help worrying about them, and you should separate the worry from the physical manifestation, and that's how you do it. You can you can change in every moment. One moment, you can change it. You can change that moment from worry to objectivity. And so you should be objective about the thought. You should be objective about the experiences, the tension and the, the feeling in the body which you identify as being anxiety and fear, which it's not, it's physical. But it it snowballs, it, it echoes back and forth. So it bounces from anxiety to physical manifestation and then you get anxious about that and then back and forth and it gets bigger and bigger and worse and worse. But you can help it. And you focus, I mean, start by being objective about the worry itself, say worrying, worrying, and you'll see that should disappear immediately. And then all you're left with is the potential physical manifestations of the fear or the worry, and then focus on that, say feeling, feeling tense, tense, or whatever. If you start thinking about whatever it is that makes you worried again, I mean, it's gonna, it's a habit. This kind of worry or anxiety is habitual, it's strong, it's probably gonna take you years, if not lifetimes, to overcome. If you come and do an intensive course, you could do it quicker, but it still takes time. And so you have to understand that it's not going to change overnight. But this is how you do it. You can change it. You take the time moment by moment to cultivate new habits. And over the weeks and months and years, you'll see it change. Or come and do an intensive course and you can really put a dent in it.
all caught up on questions. Okay, enough then. Thank you all for coming out. If you have more questions, come back tomorrow. We're only a few days away, no? It's the 29th, so that's 30th, 31st. On Tuesday, there's a movie, and I'm moving into this new house. We're really doing this. We're going to start a new meditation center, monastery, a new place. And if anybody's interested in getting involved with Sari Mangalo to volunteer, we have our volunteer meeting tomorrow at 12 noon, Eastern time, which is 1600 UTC time. Same place, same channel. Different channel. Oh, that's true. Yeah, that's true. We're using the Siri Mongol International channel. That's so how true. are we doing that? Um, last week it worked pretty well, except I had some tif technical difficulties, but I'll get that figured out before. We'll put a link uh, to the tomorrow. channel in the hangout, in the, in the shout box, right? Yes. Okay, so and then anyone who... Mm -hmm. Yeah, anyone who wants to be in the Hangout, just give us the email and we'll invite mm -hmm. them and other people can stay and just communicate through chat if they prefer. But um, And I'll put something now. Do you have a, if you put a Facebook announcement up? Yes, I, I created a Facebook event. Okay, I'll share it on my so, page as well. Sure. Sure. So that's tomorrow. And we also, on, on Sundays, we also have our Visuddhimaga and Pali classes too which are really fun. If anybody's interested in those, those will be directly after the volunteer meeting. All kinds of stuff goes on on Sundays. Okay. Thank you all for tuning in. Thank you, Robin, for joining me. Thank you, Bhante. You Good night. Good night. Good night.